Forum Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North, all citizens of the globe, welcome. People, the Forum Professor is finally returning. This time to complete our series with him on Nazi history, more specifically to tie our current world situation of oligarchs and corporatism with what transpired after World War II in the covert world of Cold War, spycraft, private power networks and the rise of the globalist cartels. In part one, we examine the post-war background, revisiting some facts, making some new points and discussing how the new world order of finance and business consolidates and conglomerates, spearheaded by the incredibly powerful Bormann Group, which, albeit, was known to most world players and intel agencies, mostly operated in the shadows protected from any significant media scrutiny, save a few outliers like scattered FBI reports, Nazi hunters like Simon Wiesenthal, investigative journalists like Farago and Manning, power-critical political analysts like the Linden LaRouche organization, and of course, in popular entertainment, although heavily cloaked, like in the James Bond series or the Prisoner series. In part two, we recap a listing of the most important events from the late 30s onto the late 70s, which paints a very clear picture of an independent network of ex-Nazis who operates with their own command structure and agenda, whilst heavily infiltrating most Western power bases. We even address the Zionist component as we draw further lines up to modern times, pausing at the waypoint with a much too short examination of 9-11 and finally reach the explosion of craziness that is our modern contemporary times of pandemic, UFO disclosure, economical crisis, corporatism, censorship and the fascistification of modern politics, culture, democracies, and indeed the very globe itself. Obviously, we are not done with the latter phenomenon. But in terms of the historic connections with its Nazi roots, this is our last show on it with Dr. Farrell. Although, uh, we are also going to do a similar with Levanda later this year. And additionally, we may have special episodes in the future zooming in on specific events and phenomena related to the war or its immediate repercussions. Of course, it takes a true dot connector like Joseph Farrell to guide us through this maze of weird and lesser-known historic facts. Indeed, he is a true Renaissance man commanding a large number of subjects, both from his personal interest as well as through his formal education. As a former university professor with a PhD from Oxford, he masters several interdisciplinary matters, including a long life passion for subjects in which he's attained a skilled level, 
These include ancient and anomalous history, obscure physics and exotic science, deep-layered philosophy and theology, as well as system and power criticism and analysis. Moreover, Dr. Farrell is a respected documents researcher with mastery of all sorts of primary texts and has a creative ability to perceive new angles in old expositions, uncovering lost and forgotten facts and consequently unearthing innovative solutions. He has also an artistic side as a lifelong classical composer and performer of the cembalo in the Baroque style of Johann Sebastian Bach. A major factor to why he captivates our attention, apart from his huge knowledge database, is that he's not shy of scenario thinking, though as a proper scholar makes it clear when he speculates and what his argued hypotheses are based upon. This allows us to draw our own conclusions and even pursue further loose threads. Joseph is also well known as an outstanding, prolific author, having written more than 40 books on various themes, and the two that are in focus today are The Third Way, subtitled The Nazi International, European Union and Corporate Fascism, and Hidden Finance, Rogue Networks and Secret Sorcery, subtitled the Fascist International, 9-11, and Penetrated Operations. Welcome back to the show, uh, f- uh, Joseph. Thanks for having me back, Al. Yes, uh, barely. Barely we made it, huh? Yeah, we did. <laughs> we can't even blame COVID. No. <laughs> <laughs> but what we can do is surmise that the world will become normal now, because... Since last we spoke, all this shit has gone down. Yeah. So I think it was because we haven't spoken that much. So now we've spoken, and now I assume the world will get back to normal. <laughs> and we'll not talk too much about uh, the current situation, because we, then we'll never get out of that uh, topic. It's, it's so ironic, mm-hmm. because the main book I thought we could take on today is called The Third Way. The Nazi International, European Union, and... Drumroll, corporate fascism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we see going on today. Yeah, it really is. Right? So, uh, yeah. and I guess we can draw some lines to that. But, you know, like I said to you right before we begun, I want to wrap up the Nazi series. Mm-hmm. There's so many other things we could talk about. And we've come all the way to the 70s mm-hmm. with you, mm-hmm. 70s. So we could begin around the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and up to now. And of course, that includes another book you did. Can you tell me the title of that book? Uh, you're referring to the 9-11 book, which yeah. is called Hidden Finance, Rogue Networks, and Secret Sorcery. And the subtitle of that is The Fascist International 9-11 and Penetrated Operations. Right, so that's kind of a continuation of both the Nazi series and the economic series, right? Right. Yeah. I don't have that book, unfortunately, because you have so many. And uh, we haven't done any economic show yet with you yet. I, but I think we should touch some of the contents. 
especially the 9-11 stuff, because mm-hmm. that connected to the third way. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I, I don't have that book, but I'm going to get it. And I suggest everyone else do too, because I've heard interviews you've done about it. And mm-hmm. it's fascinating stuff, man. And it does dovetail the one I do hold in my hand, the third way. And uh, I've heard you talk about it in other shows. So I think I can wing it from my end. <laughs> I hope I can too. It's been a while since <laughs> I wrote it. <laughs> it's, it's on you. So oh, what I was <laughs> what I was thinking we could do today we wrap up the Nazi series. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very popular t- subject though. Uh, there's a guy called Tino Stuckman or something. Yeah, I know Tino. Yeah, yeah. I've had like ten people telling me to get him on my show. Yeah, and they said he's a friend of yours. Yes, he is. So is he like? But then he can't be very mainstream in his views, right? Well, Tino, what Tino does is he takes trips. And how the how I evolved in, into being a contact of his is he decided to take a trip over to that whole area of, of Lower Silesia and then Upper Silesia and, and Turingen and look at all of those installations that I've been writing about associated with the bell, uh, Der Riese, and, and you know all of those installations. Mm. And he's gone over there and videotaped them. And Al, I got to tell you, what he has videotaped is absolutely off the charts astounding. Mm. The sheer size of those installations is mind-boggling. I had I had personally no idea of of the sheer scale. So what he does is he simply goes and, and videotapes these things. And uh, we did a a long interview series of interviews looking at his pictures that he brought back, particularly of of the installations immediately around the Bell site. Mm. And I, I got to tell you, it's, it's quite astonishing just to see what he's, what he's done. So what he's doing basically is he's, he's going to the sites and then showing, you know, on, on camera, Mm. not only, not only the scale, but what was involved in, in the construction of these things. Al, it's, it's absolutely astonishing. So he's, he's, a, he's a true boots on the ground researcher. That's he's a great. true boots on the ground researcher. And uh, the scale of those sites, I think he actually measured some of those sites uh, in, in lower Silesia and, and uh, Turingen of about, I think he said something like 140 square kilometers is involved mm. in in all of these installations. It's it's off the charts. You you got to watch these things. Yeah, Tino Tino's a good guy, and I think he probably would be a good one to have on your program to to interview some of these uh, about some of these sites. Yeah, and it struck me that he must be a perfect complement to you. Oh yeah, absolutely. You're a, you, yeah, you're a dot connector. He's a he's a, a boots on the ground guy. So he's a boots on the ground guy. <laughs> you two should he, cooperate, man. <laughs> well, in addition to that, Tino uh, Tino his his name is von Struckmann, so he speaks German and he has been in the right. military and. So he's the perfect one to go around and look at all these sites. He's done videotapes of uh, Maginot line installations and so on, and it's really quite astonishing. So I think your, I think your listeners and viewers would enjoy uh, enjoy him a lot. Yeah, he's American though, right? Yeah, he is American. Um, I forget what his he's out in California, mm. but he takes these trips back to Germany, Denmark, uh, France, and so on. 
and explores all of these installations. And, and what he's uncovered is, is truly breathtaking. It really is. Send him to Bariloche. There are sites there, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I was... I was <laughs> he's supposed to be visiting sometime uh, in the next couple months. I don't know if his plans have changed, but I was going to suggest that to him. Mm. But yeah, he's, he's very much into old military installations. Right, yeah. And we have that uh, site we all know down there, which oh, yeah. would be great to get explored. Yeah. Okay, so I have here now the third way open. Mm-hmm. Now, you start in the first chapter, you start uh, with something called the Madrid Circular. Yeah. Wouldn't that be a good place to start the whole story? Yeah, well, the Madrid Circular is a document that was purportedly circulated by the German Geopolitical Society, which was a society that was founded after the war in nationalist Spain. It's, it's very, in my opinion, it's coming out of that circle in, in Madrid that was associated with um, SS Colonel Otto Scorzani, mm. the, the SS commando, who, as as things have turned out as more information has come out about him and his (laughs) shenanigans in Spain. Uh, He was kind of a a bag man, a go-to man, not only for this post-war Nazi organization, but he was also kind of a bag man for the CIA and so on and so forth. So he was, he was a mover and shaker. But I sus- Hang on, doesn't that just indicate that the connections between CIA and the post-war Nazi network is super close? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been trying to point this out ever since I began that Nazi series. It, it is super close, and for one very important reason. Uh, we have to go back to, to the end of the of Second World War, to the agreement that was struck between uh, Major General... Reinhard Galen, who ran the German military intelligence unit on the Eastern Front. It was called an organization called Fremte Herre Ost, Foreign Armies East. And he made a deal with the CIA that basically amounted to turning over his entire human intelligence network in, in the Eastern Bloc to CIA auspices, just so long as he remained in day-to-day control of it. And what this meant, in effect, in the immediate post-war period was that the CIA analysis of Soviet intentions and capabilities was coming directly from this Nazi military (laughs) intelligence unit. And it was so bad, Al, that at times Galen's analyses were simply typed up on CIA stationery without any modification or comment and handed directly to President Truman. So, you know, we have we have a Nazi general briefing President Truman on on Soviet capabilities and intentions. So that's how close this association was. Well, Scorzani, this Madrid circular comes out of this German uh, geopolitical society, which I strongly suspect is is closely associated with Scorzani's group there in Madrid. And to give you another idea of how close the, the tie between this Nazi group and the CIA was, Scorzani's offices in, in Madrid were in the same building as the CIA right. <laughs> offices in right. Berlin. So anyway, the Madrid Circular is a very interesting document because it says something very, very crucial that 
you know, I've long suspected, but the Madrid document comes right out and says it. The circular says basically that the bomb plot against uh, Hitler in, in July of 1944, you know, the one that's associated with Count von Stauffenberg and so on, that when that went wrong, the Nazis used it. And this is so crucial. The Nazis used it as a way to launder people's identities to smuggle them out of Europe after World War II. And let me tell you how they did this. They, the circular claims that many people that were accused and then subsequently claimed to have been executed by the Nazis for the bomb plot was really their way of taking some of these people right. and saying that they were dead so that the allies wouldn't be looking for them. Oh, that's so smart. <laughs> because they knew, they knew already then, obviously, which way the wind was blowing. Yeah, it sure. It was late. Yeah. yeah. And you stop and think, one of the people that I have always had suspicions about, and you probably know the name and you probably know how oily of, <laughs> of an individual he really was, mm -hmm. was Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, the head mm. of Up There. Mm. Because Canaris, if you recall back in World War One, was a, a, uh, an officer with uh, Admiral Graf von Spee's Far Eastern Squadron that made its way from the Pacific all the way around the, the uh, Straits of Magellan in South America. Right. I built a Shangri-La for der Führer. Right. Yeah, well, yeah, well what, <laughs> this is interesting because uh, Admiral von Spee delegated Canaris to the special duty as they were making this trip around the Horn of South America to scout out locations for secret U-boat uh, bases and pens. And this is what he did. And then later, of course, during, during World War II, Canaris becomes the head of German military counterintelligence. <laughs> so, and, you know, we know the story of Canaris. He was constantly... Uh, negotiating with the allies behind Hitler's back and, you know, pulling all sorts of other stuff. But at the same time, he's still running German, uh, German counterintelligence and he was implicated in the bomb plot. And I'm thinking, okay, if, if we're going to have a strategic evacuation as Martin Bormann, you know, put into place and get all of these Nazis and patents and everything else out of Europe and down to South America, who better Mm. to be in charge of something like that than Admiral Canaris. He knows all the nooks and crannies and secret bays and coves and so on and so forth. So I have my suspicions that maybe even Admiral Canaris was one of these people that the Madrid Circular says was, you know, that the execution was faked. Oh, so he was, he was allegedly executed uh, after the bomb plot? Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, he was supposedly allegedly executed. And you stop and think of, of some of the people who were executed. There were several generals, officers, and so on and so forth. And it gets to be a little suspicious. And, you know, here's the Madrid Circuit that comes right out and says, well, a lot of these people weren't really involved. They just faked it and pretended to execute these people and give them new identities and so on and so forth. Yeah, especially Canaris. He, he seems too loyal, too useful yeah. in the history to right. suddenly turn. Exactly. He, he was too invested, I think. Yeah, well, he, you know, Canaris was a typical uh, 
World War One Imperial German Navy officer. In other words, his 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 cultural and 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 national loyalties were unquestionable. He never liked the Nazi regime, but nevertheless, he served in it. So you know, Canaris is really in this respect no different than Grand Admiral Raider or Grand Admiral Dönitz. Yeah, there. Yeah, but Dönitz was 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 rewarded or becoming yes. Hitler's successor. But I, I think another. Well, we'll stop and look at that. Wait a minute. Yeah, stop yeah. and look at stop and look at Dönitz. Why would Hitler make Dönitz his successor? This is just about the last person that you would suspect that he would do this with. You know, bypassing Goebbels and Goering and all the other henchmen. Right. And I strongly suspect that the reason why <clears throat> is that. Dönitz played a crucial role in those very late war strategic evacuations, making U-boats available to get people yeah. and stuff out and so on and so forth. So Dönitz, again, is, is another kind of confirmation of this pattern that, that what we're looking at is simply not a, a happenstance thing. This, this was all very well thought out and coordinated. Plus, Hitler didn't trust Goering oh, right. and Goebbels at that point. Uh, right. But there is another dissonance with uh, Canaris, who, which is similar to what you just said. Canaris, uh, you know, he sees which way the winds are blowing. Mm -hmm. uh, now, when he's been involved in creating the Shangri-La, the end for mm -hmm. the rat lines, mm -hmm. why would he then desperately suddenly try to turn towards Hitler when he knows right. that... What's waiting us is a paradise. It's a new country. We have right. resources. We have the corporations. We have everything. So, so it doesn't make sense that he would be desperate and try to, you know, oh, oh. Yeah, this is the part of it that's always bothered me, Al, um, yeah. because his, like I say, his knowledge of potential uh, bases and, and coves and things to hide U-boats and, and land secretly in South America yeah. was extensive. And he's about the last person that you'd want to get rid of. And let's take into account another possibility in this regard. Even if Canaris was uh, opposed to Hitler, as I think he genuinely was, uh, there's no doubt that he was involved in trying to carry on secret negotiations with the Western allies. But the way I'm looking at it is if you're a Martin Bormann, and let's remember, Martin Bormann is really the man that's in charge of this strategic evacuation plan. Well, Bormann is, is not so impractical an ideologue that he's going to want to get rid of a man that has this kind of information and that would be useful mm. in that evacuation plan. So I think I think you have to look at the possibility that the relationship between Canaris and Bormann was a lot more tight than the history books have led on to. At least at the at the end. Uh, right. After, yeah. Right. No, I was thinking the same thing that uh, his disdain for Hitler would be. He would be encouraged by the fact that Bormann was controlling everything, and Bormann probably reassured him that no, 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 right. relax. When when we are down there. I'm calling the shots. So right. um, now this uh, Madrid circular, it has some interesting, I mean, it has many shocking uh, allegations. You have uh, two uh, sub points. One you call the exploitation of Islam, the other one you call the pivot to Asia, because many people mm -hmm. can't make sense of. We know, of course, that the Nazis used uh, Islamic forces. I think even Hitler was 
yes. uh, was kudosing Islam of being very useful religion in order mm -hmm. to create the kind of soldiers they needed, right? Uh, true believers. Mm -hmm. And we see also after the war that although South America was the base, for some reason, this post-war Nazi network was all over Islam country yes. and Asia. <laughs> yes, yes. And this is reflected in the circular, isn't it? Well, it's not only reflected in the circular, but you get you get uh, even kind of an outline of why they're doing this in that the circular makes it very clear that they're going to bide their time, so to speak, and create as much tension between the American bloc and, and the Soviet bloc after the war, because that gives Germany and that gives them, more importantly, maneuvering room. Mm. Um, and Islam, I think, figures into this because you have all of those post-war contacts between this, this Galen organization between West Germany and so on, and the Islamic Brotherhood. Let's, let's not forget that when the the Allies decide to overthrow King Farouk in Egypt and back uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, that the boots on the ground running that CIA operation, and again, let's remember, it's a CIA operation ultimately, mm. but the boots on the ground that the CIA is using are, guess who? Otto Skorzeny, Hjalmar Schacht, you know, Wilhelm Foss, and you know, all of these, all of these Nazis. So it, it's, it's, figuring very tightly into their post-war geopolitical calculation that they're going to use America's anti-imperialism crusade as a front or as a cover for their, for their own activities. Yeah, plus uh, it's a very safe bet because at that, right. right after the war and up until modern times, I'd say, Muslims were the most invested in being both anti-Jew or anti-Israel right. as well as anti-Soviet. Right. And that's right. two natural enemies for the Nazis. Yes, exactly. This is why you find on the Nazi front, as as uh, they're overthrowing King Farouk, you've got players, Nazis on both sides, yeah. manipulating events because there's a so the Soviet. Uh, Egyptian desk is headed by a former Nazi who, had, who converted to Islam, of all things. So they've managed to infiltrate themselves rather well into the power structures of post-war Europe, and for that matter, the post-war order. And since we're mentioning you know, Asia, you also mentioned Asia, the other important thing to remember as, a, as an area for all of this Nazi activity is, guess where? It's Indonesia. Mm which is struggling, of course, for its own release from, from the Dutch imperial order and eventually succeeds, of course, because Indonesia has gobs of, of natural resources and so on. And where do we find some of these Nazis hanging around and lurking and, and doing their thing? Well, again, if you look at President Kennedy and some of his efforts in Indonesia during the 1960s before his assassination, you also find Hjalmar Schacht yeah. <laughs> wandering around Indonesia trying to make all of these deals for, guess who, Aristotle Onassis. So, you mm. know, the, you know the, the, the connections are just mind-boggling. You couldn't make this stuff up in a bad Hollywood B-movie, no. but they're there. <laughs> they are. 
Levanda suspects that even Hitler ended up in Indonesia. Yes, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it's a possibility, but there were certainly famous Nazis who were present in those areas, and the Nazi gold, yep. nonetheless. Yeah. But um, another thing, before we move up again in the timeline, uh, we know that they not just infiltrated the West. I mean, they more or less took over mm-hmm. NASA, CIA, NATO, maybe even EU in some ways. Oh, boy, yes. <laughs> maybe even Germany. But would the Soviets be so naive as to trust? First off, they didn't get the A-team of Nazis, but right. the Nazis they got and wanted to exploit. How much power did they get in the Soviet system? I'm sure while Stalin lived, at least, he was super paranoid, so he would make sure none of them ascended to power. But did they manage to climb? Do we know anything about that? How much they ascended in the bureaucracy afterwards? Well, Because it- the weakness of a bureaucracy is that... If you are clever enough, you can maneuver yourself to the top. Mm-hmm. If you are uh, Machiavellian enough, and God knows many of the Nazis were. <laughs> well, the Soviets, it's very inter- that's a very good question because the Soviet approach to using these, these Nazis after the war, and particularly the, the scientific and technical teams that they captured. Uh, let's remember, Baron von Ardena, uh, actually decided to cast his lots with the Soviet bloc, not not the West, after the war. And he was absolutely crucial to the development of, of the German atom bomb. And he actually won the Stalin Prize for the work he did after the war for the Soviets in their nuclear program, and, and they let him go. And this is, this is a key point here. The Soviets, if you look at how they handled their, their treasure trove of, of Nazi technicians, they treated them very well. They used them to train and teach their, their Russian counterparts. And when they determined that they had learned as much as they could from these German scientists and technicians, they let them go. They returned them to Germany and in some cases even arranged for them to go to West Germany or even Brazil in one case. Um, so the Soviets, I think, were, were in a sense much more sophisticated and clever in their use of these people. They used them, and when they were done with them, they let them go. We made the mistake in this country of just keeping them more or less in, in permanent positions. And, and even uh, letting them ascend further. Yes, even let, yeah, let's remember that uh, during the Project Apollo, the, the moon pardon me, the moon missions, that the man that was the head of of the flight uh, arrangements of Project Apollo was Dr. Kurt Davis. Mm. And then Davis, after the end of Apollo, Davis ended up heading NASA's UFO files, you know, which is a very, very sensitive position. So in other words, the Nazis in this country were actually promoted as as high as they could go. And this, to me, is one explanation of why our space program now is so moribund, because with with the collapse of of that group of Nazis, you know, as they die off inside of NASA, there's really no one that's been able to replace them in terms of of managing NASA and spaceflight effectively. Mm. You know, which the Germans, if nothing else, they're, they're managers par excellence. So, 
Um, yeah, and, it, and I think it's telling that um, that there isn't a natural heritage of competence. You know, yeah. we should expect that after the moon, Mars next, right? But right. This just fuels the speculation, the conspiracy speculation we do, we have, that you are uh, sparrowheading, that mm. they were really loyal to the extraterritorial, that they were just using uh, America especially, but also Soviet, right. but that their real loyalties were to the extraterritorial post-war. Well, I, I, I think there's a case to be made for that because Linda Hunt, who's one of the authors I've cited in, in these Nazi books, mm. pointed out that one of the reasons that the U.S. Army counterintelligence uh, became suspicious of these Nazis a few years after they were brought over here was that it appeared to Army counterintelligence, first of all, that the Nazis had reconstructed the exact same chain of command inside of NASA that they had inside of the Third Reich. And they also were extremely suspicious that these, these Nazis that were working for the U.S. Army and Air Force in the American Southwest, they're driving around in these expensive Mercedes cars. They appeared to have a source of income, in other words, way beyond the salaries that they were being given yeah. by the Americans. And in addition to this, uh, U.S. Army counterintelligence strongly suspected, and I think for very good reason, that the Nazis were these Nazis were maintaining mail drops in, in Mexico and that they had some means of communication with each other that the U.S. Army did not know about, mm. in other words, with, with the Nazis in Latin America. Well, I can tell you what the communications network was. Galen. Because during, well, it was not just Galen. It was, it was Walter Schellenberg, <laughs> of all people, you know, in the Reichssicherheitdienst and that turned over in 19, uh, late 1944, I believe it was, turned over to Juan Perón, the Nazis' Bolivar transmitter network inside of Latin America. In other words, Juan Perón got the entire shortwave communication radio system <laughs> that the Nazis right. had built up in Mexico and South America. Right. So there's all sorts of stuff going on here, but... I think it's very clear uh, from Linda Hunt and other people that have really dug into this that that there was a chain of command amongst these Nazis inside the American uh, Black Projects world that was more or less quasi-independent of American control. And, you know, that means, as you say, that means that their ultimate loyalties are still with this, this extraterritorial whatever it is that they yeah. set up after the war. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, the, your next uh, chapter, you know, in, in order to make it ring a bell for you, I'm going to read it. It's a very mm -hmm. long title. The mm -hmm. fascist phoenix from Aryan ashes, the bad chancellor, the cunning minister, the good chancellor and the continuity of an idea from Batman Holweg through Rathenau to Adenauer. Mm -hmm. So what's that all about? Well, what it's about is a pattern of the way that the, I'm, I'm going to call it the German deep state right. behaves 
and has consistently behaved throughout its history whenever it suffers setbacks, like, you know, losing World War One. That, that was a big one. Mm. But we have to look at what happens at the end of, of World War One, and I'm talking particularly here with, with uh, Chancellor Bethmann Holweg and then on into Walter Rathenau during the interwar period. Because if you look at what happens, the first thing we have to take cognizance of is, is the Kaiser's abdication. Because what this really did was it, it made Kaiser Wilhelm the scapegoat for the war, which, of course, if you really examine the evidence, he, he was the last person to approve German mobilization. Germany mobilized last, not first. So in other words, he, he's usually blamed for the war, but he actually did a little bit to try and head it off. Mm-hmm. So they stick, the, they stick the, the blame for the war and the war's failure on the Kaiser. They get rid of the Kaiser, but that leaves the rest of the German deep state intact. And this is crucial. Because if you look at what the war aims were, Germany started the war really with no strategic plan of what they wanted if they were to win the war. So in September of 1914, Chancellor Bethmann Hallweg published what he thought were adequate war aims. And if you look at what Bethmann Hallweg is talking about is he wants to establish a kind of a customs, a free trade customs zone in Central Europe, you know, revolving around Germany and with Austria-Hungary as kind of a satellite and and acquisition of Eastern lands, Poland, the Baltic states, and so on, okay? Mm -hmm. So stop and think what he's just said there. He's just basically giving you the first draft of the EU. And then if we advance to the time of, of uh, Chancellor Rathenau, who was only in office for a very short period of time, uh, he had been connected with, with the Siemens company and so on and so forth. So in other words, again, we have the German deep state, these big German cartels and, and industrial giants. And Rathenau is the chancellor that was overseeing the Rapallo Pact with the Soviet Union. And this is a very, very crucial pact because Germany, of course, is one pariah state within Europe, and the Soviet Union's the other. Okay, mm. so the al- the Western Allies essentially drive these two powers together, and Rathenau negotiates this pact with the Soviets, and at the insistence of Colonel General uh, Hans Zeigt. Okay, and Zeigt is another crucial figure here because he's the man that took charge of the German military, the Reichsheer, after the Treaty of Versailles. Mm. And let me stop and, and go a little bit into detail here of why von Zeigt is so important to the German military. The Treaty of Versailles left the Reichsheer with an army of no larger than 100,000 men. The Germans were not permitted to have any heavy artillery beyond 15 centimeters caliber. You know, the Allies learned the hard way about dealing with German artillery. But but von Zeigt made the conclusion, and he was entirely correct. You have to understand, the Allies basically left the one power left in the center of Europe after the dismantling of Austria-Hungary, basically defenseless. 
Mm. And you can't, you can't think of international security with, especially with the Soviet Union looming on the other side of Germany, of leaving it basically defenseless. So von Zeigt insisted to Rottenau, to the chancellor, that secret codicils be added to the Rapallo Treaty with the Soviet Union that would allow the Germans to train with all the weapons that they were prohibited from the Treaty of Versailles to have to let them do it in the Soviet Union. So in other words, the Germans made a deal whereby the Soviet Union, particularly under Stalin, as he's rising in power at the time, mm-hmm. as the Soviets are trying to industrialize at breakneck speed so that they don't have to suffer another war with Germany without an industrial plant. Yeah. Uh, so the Germans make the deal that, okay, we'll build those factories for you if you let us train with all these prohibited weapons on Soviet territory. Mm. Now, this was all von Zeigt and his doing because von Zeigt had concluded that eventually Germany would have to rearm simply by the sheer geopolitical situation that they're in. And as a result of that, he decides to make that tiny little 100,000-man army, the Reichsheer, a cadre army. And he trained and drilled that army for all of those years in between the wars until Hitler came along and, and rearmed Germany. He, he basically, uh, what I'm telling you is von Zeigt created the nucleus of the Wehrmacht because every single soldier in that tiny little army was drilled to the point that they would be able to take over command of the next two largest units above them. In other words, if you're a battalion commander, you would train to be able to take over command of a regiment and a brigade. If you're a regimental commander, you would be trained to take over command of a brigade and, if necessary, an entire division and so on. So this little cadre army that he creates, when Hitler takes power, he's got an officer corps, basically, of 100,000 men that he can promote and then graft new recruits around that officer corps and create what we now know as the Wehrmacht. Mm. So, in other words, von Zeigt and Rathenau in the interwar period are laying long-term plans for German rearmament. And they're using, please note, they're using the Soviet Union as a proxy state in which to do it. And if you look at, again, at the end of World War II, what do you see the German deep state and particularly the uh, armament companies doing? Well, again, they're using proxy states to accomplish what they want to do. They're using South Africa for their nuclear program and to get bombs. They're using Iran. They're, you know, they're transmitting the entire nuclear fuel cycle to Brazil, you know. Yeah, <laughs> so, and, and doing covert war against Israel through yeah, and countries like Egypt. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. But uh, it's interesting, you know, this, after the Second World War, they were back to basics, right? Yeah, you can't have any military. Right. But I think they bypassed it brilliantly. I mean, nowadays, I think they actually <laughs> finally can make their own military, but they didn't really need one because I think the Madrid Circular you know, you, you say the first sensational statement, the Nazi plan for a united Europe. Now, if they could make a united Europe that they were controlling, they wouldn't need their own army, would they? 
Well, they would they would certainly need a, a an they would need a military if simply for the reason to be able to integrate other European militaries into that structure. And this is exactly yeah, but they don't need a German military. Is is my point? Well, well, no, I think they still need a German military. But what they're going to do is they're going to internationalize the command structure. Mm. And again, if you look very carefully at Angela Merkel's Germany in particular. What you see her doing is something very, very intriguing. Um, she presides, you know, she inherits a, a very well-equipped and, and sizable military when she becomes chancellor, but then she allows it to kind of go to seed. Uh, it gets smaller and smaller, but at the same time that this is happening, units of the Dutch military, the Czech military, the Danish military are being integrated into the Bundeswehr command structure, <laughs> which, mm. you know, is, is a little known story, but it's, it's an actual fact. And the other thing that they're doing is, again, the old business of using foreign, foreign nations as proxies for their weapons. Most people don't know, and this will come as a shocker to quite a few people, but most people don't know that the thermonuclear warheads on French ballistic missile submarines are built by guess who? Germans. The Germans. <laughs> of course. I don't see of French course. people being into mechanics. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, this is, again, part of the pattern. And I've left out one chancellor. That's the so-called good chancellor, who's Konrad Adenauer. Well, if you look at the early cabinets of Chancellor Adenauer, you're going to find uh, federal cabinets that are filled with ex-Nazis. Mm. You know, Ludwig Erhard, after, after Adenauer, Ludwig Erhard was, was a minister for Goebbels' propaganda ministry. So, you, mm. know, you find all of these people in, in, in Adenauer's cabinet, and then you have kind of a fake coup, the so-called Nauman coup, where a bunch of neo-Nazis were trying to overthrow uh, Adenauer's cabinet. And he kind of pulls a fast one on both the British and, and the neo-Nazis by overthrowing the coup and then putting a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of old Nazis. Yeah. Old, <laughs> yeah, old Nazis in, in his cabinet. So the, the neo-Nazis are useful idiots. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, this, this is the impression I come away with, mm. you know, but again, Adenauer is, is very clever. He's he's uh, he's basically the spokesman for for the German deep state, and you know this is this is not something new with Hitler. It's it's you know it actually predates the Kaisers. So you know yeah. we're dealing with systems of power in that country, just as we are with other countries, and. They're very efficient at keeping that, that system in place. Yeah, but I was more thinking of NATO as their real army. Uh, indeed, I think the circular also mentions NATO, doesn't it? Well, it mentions NATO. And again, the way it, it, it deals with NATO is, is this is maneuvering room behind which they can maneuver to put Germany into a position of predominance within you know within what they're ultimately planning which is the european union and while we're talking about that we have to talk about one of adenauer's principal advisors is a german lawyer uh by the way by pardon me by the name of walter Hallstein. Um, this lawyer is a very interesting character because 
during the war, he was an advocate for creating something like the modern European Union. And the way he wanted to do it, this is very, very crucial, was by amalgamating and, and uh, creating basically one system of patent law inside of Europe. Hmm. And if you look at the original founding treaty of, of the Axis powers between Germany and Italy, one of the codicils of that treaty is precisely the creation of a committee of German and Italian lawyers to amalgamate patent law between the two countries so that they can more effectively transfer technology between the two. Mm. You know, and that's very significant. You may not think that, well, what does Italy have to offer Germany? Well, I'll tell you what Italy has to offer Germany. The Milan University uh, nuclear reactor patents. Mm. <laughs> you know, so... Didn't they uh, experiment with cold fusion? Well, I think, I think they did a lot of that stuff, yes. Yeah. But, uh, I think that came out of Italy. Uh, well, some of it I think definitely does, but some of it I think is coming out of... Uh, people like Fritz Hudermans and, and uh, Baron von Ardena in, inside of Nazi Germany. But, mm. but my point here is Hallstein is laying the, the actual nuts and bolts groundwork for the amalgamation of law inside of Europe. And there was certainly a great deal of that during the Nazi era with their occupation of, of so much of, of the European continent. They're busily trying to amalgamate law. And let's look at one more thing that's very crucial in this respect. In 1942, IG Farben and the German finance ministry and Reichsbank under Walter Funk sponsored a study called Weltraum Cartel, World Space Cartel. And this was a very academic sort of uh, council on foreign relations study of how basically to create a European Union that Germany would be able to economically and militarily dominate. And if you look at the plans laid out in that study in 1942 and look at the way that the modern European Union is structured, you will find some astonishing parallels because this was all to be managed this was to be a managed state with bureaucrats that were unelected running everything hmm. and what do we see <laughs> exactly yeah and, and the rise of the corporations is right. crucial in all this but we'll get to that right but you have um, in the next chapter uh, I think uh, you know, there's too much here to cover everything but you have something called jihad made in Germany <laughs> yeah, I think that's important to uh, illuminate people about. I would say actually that it started. You know, people think people don't understand Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, we everybody knows that Christianity has a million different expressions, and right. if you compare two self-declared Christian manifestations, there will be bigger difference between them and a particular Christian manifestation and another religion. If you right. get, get right. my drift. Yeah, so, so it's so uh, varied. I mean, compare the Aramaic church to Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Two different mm. beasts altogether. Mm -hmm. People don't understand that Islam is also very varied. Yes. But it's getting less and less and less yes. because the English created a monster. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I lived in the Middle Ages, I prefer living in, in an Islamic country. But 
then, well, they were certainly much more advanced. Yeah, and peaceful and all that stuff. But then, the 1800s, Satan manifests on earth through Salafism, um, Wahhabism comes to earth, mm -hmm. gets birth. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, it's such an obscure little outlier, right? Some degenerate out in the desert right. who, who dreams up this idiocy. But the Brits, in order to crush the Ottoman Empire, seizes yes. this. Yes. And here's the point. Nazis uh, succeeds the Brits in this <laughs> and exploits it further before America eventually takes over. So I think that's an important and what you're getting at here when you say Well, I'm I'm getting at that all of during World War 1, the the two principal powers, Germany and Great Britain, were both trying to exploit these little divisions with is in Islam to their benefit. Because on the German side, we have Baron von Oppenheim, who goes to the Kaiser as they're, as they're trying to woo the Ottoman Empire to come into the war. Baron von Oppenheim proposes to the Kaiser that the way to do this is to, number one, reassure the Ottomans that you will help them protect Muslim holy sites, which the Kaiser does. Remember, the Kaiser took that trip to the Middle East uh, in 1898. Yeah. Uh, to the Ottoman Empire, then toured down to Jerusalem and so on. Mm. And he was constantly saying that we're with you and we want to protect all of this, these holy sites and so on and so forth. Now, of course, the Kaiser's real goal here is to create the Berlin to Baghdad Railway and get his hands on Middle Eastern oil, you know, just like everybody else. But Baron von Oppenheim is the one that persuades the Kaiser to set up within the German general staff, a unit to deal especially and exclusively with Islamic affairs. And von Oppenheim is the one that persuades the Sultan to, per, to invoke jihad against the enemies of the central powers. Now, this is totally at variance with Islamic law, okay? Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, he's successful in this, and the Ottoman Sultan does this. And then on top of this, the, the next target for von Oppenheim, von Oppenheim was Iran. And this is very crucial to the history of modern Islam, because it was in Iran, if you study things carefully, it was in Iran prior to the outbreak of the First World War that you had a movement of Muslim scholars that realized we've got to reform this religion or we're just going to be left in the dust. Yeah, yeah. And as a result of this, von Oppenheim does not want to see that happen, and he is instrumental in backing some of the more fundamentalist people inside of Iran to squash that movement. Mm -hmm. So in other words, there is as much blame, in my opinion, to be laid at the door of Germany in creation of a lot of this jihad stuff, as well as Great Britain. The Nazis kind of go von Oppenheim a step further, because you remember that Adolf Hitler personally met with the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. I think it was... That's right, and accepted Bosnian uh, soldiers. Ex yes, accepted the SS Hanschar division. Mm that fought on the Eastern Front was largely Muslim volunteers mm. from Bosnia. Mm. So the Nazis were, were carrying out von Oppenheim's plan from World War I with a vengeance. Mm. 
because they were providing money to these people. They were providing military training and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's going to be interesting later when we get to 9-11. <laughs> yes, it will. I, I, think, I think we should say 11-9 so the YouTube algorithm doesn't pick up on this <laughs> in these uh, <laughs> censoring times. But let's move on in the timeline. So we, we've laid the groundwork for a lot of stuff here. And um, mm -hmm. uh, you say conclusions to part one, cartels, compartmentalization. Rapallo redundancy and radical religion. Mm -hmm. I think you should elaborate a little on, on especially the cartels part. We haven't touched so much. Well, the 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 cartel, I, I'm the cartel part comes from that I.G. Farben, uh, Reichsbank uh, and Finance Ministry 1942 study, because the the plan for the European Union that is, is sketched out. In, in some detail in that publication is remember what the term, the German term for it was Weltraum cartel, mm. the world cartel space. Mm. So in other words, what they're, what they're trying to do is create a, a European union that effectively is run by companies like IG Farben, which has, of course, at that time, <coughs> pardon me, licensing agreements with other big companies, you know, Standard Oil and so on and so forth. Mm. So IG Farben effectively used its, its licensing agreements for gigantic technology transfers from America, from Britain to Germany prior to the war. And this was, this was the system that they envisioned after the war, if there was a Nazi victory for a kind of European Union that was centered around Germany because it was really a corporate cartel union that they were planning. It was a corporate fascist state in, in every classical sense of the word with gigantic corporations really running things. So this is, this is exactly what's coming out of uh, the Nazi period. And again, if you compare that study and, also Walter Hallstein's role in setting up these international agreements after the war. Hallstein is there at the creation of the common market signing for Germany. And you'll find Hallstein in, in and around the circles of the chancellor all the way up to Willy Brandt. Wow. So yeah. Wow. And this guy was a full 100% Nazi. I mean, <laughs> there's just no doubting it. And he's there, you know, helping set all these agreements up. So I think, I think if you're looking at cartels, you have to look at these big German firms, IG Farben and its successors, Bayer, um, BASF, and so on and so mm -hmm. forth, that have become so powerful, not only in Germany, but on the world corporate stage. Rheinmetall, you know, another one, the Rheinmetall Defense Systems. Think of Airbus as yet another one of these uh, post-war cartels, you know, it's a consortium basically of Dassault in France and Messerschmitt in Germany. <laughs> you know? yes. so, did, did you mention Bayer? I, I did mention Bayer, mm. yeah. And yeah. there's uh, many changes names and they, right. they uh, fuse, uh, Monsanto has now right. changed. Uh, but right. it's interesting what you say there because a clue, you said that the corporations would run it. That would right. be different from back in the day under the Fuhrer 
it was the same structure, but he was calling the shots. Right. If we fast forward to today, it's the complete opposite. Most nation states right. are hijacked by the West, in the West at least, yes. are hijacked by the corporation. So, right. you know, people can say, oh, it's a coincidence, but it's a very interesting coincidence that it's following the plan. <laughs> Well, it's a very interesting coincidence that you find that pattern, not just in the United States, you find it in Canada, you find it in Great Britain, you find yeah. it in France, you find it certainly in Italy, you find it in Spain, you find it in Germany, where these big corporations are really the things running things. Mm. Just look at just look at the chemical, car, you know, the big German chemical firms, BASF, um, Bayer, and so on, or Sanofi in France. You look at these big chemical combines and and look at where they're making their political contributions. You know, look at Sarkozy and Sanofi in France. Look at Angela Merkel and Bayer and BASF in Germany and Helmut Kohl. And, you know, all of these people are beholden to these gigantic cartels. And they weren't, the Nazis weren't just dominating the chemical industry. They were right. dominating something that is crucial for our contemporary power structure, and that is the vaccine industry, or I should oh, say yes. pharma, I mean. Right. Big pharma is, is a direct uh, heritage from the Nazis, and who's running the world today? Yeah, exactly. So... Now, in part two, you call that Europe from the Atlantic to the Urals, cartels, currency, and Nazis. Mm -hmm. I think we should uh, do a review of the most important points from this chapter, too. Well, the thing there that's, that's very easy to understand, what, what I'm getting at, is that in the 1942 study, which, incidentally... It was published right at the height of Operation Blue, the big German summer offensive in, in 1942. Stalingrad had not... Oops, there's my home security canine unit. <laughs> she hears the mail. But this was, this was published right at the opening phases of Operation Blue, that big summer offensive in 1942 that would ultimately lead to the Stalingrad disaster. But Stalingrad has not yet happened, okay? Mm -hmm. So the way that the cartel space, the Weltraum space that they're trying to create, what they were really talking about in terms of, of geography was a European continental union from the Atlantic all the way to the Ural Mountains. In other words, that was their, their sphere of operation that they envisioned incorporating into this cartel state. Now, that may sound uh, disconnected from reality, but if you go back and look at the Führer Befehl number 21, the, the basically the executive order number 21, that was the order that Hitler gave to the German general staff to plan Operation Barbarossa. Okay, mm. and very specifically in the directives that he laid down for the German planners mm. was, first of all, that it was to reach a line from Ostrakhan on the northern tip of the Caspian Sea to Archangel. So, in other words, basically to the Urals. All right. Mm -hmm. That was the objective. The second the second objective was very 
very clearly stated that the German armed forces were to basically defeat the Russian armies in the field. So in other words, the objective really isn't Moscow or Leningrad or Kiev or Kharkov. It's really just annihilate the Russian army, mm. <laughs> you know, so that mm. they can go in and grab all the rest. Yeah. So in other words, the, the planning, I think, for this cartel space is reflected as early as the objectives laid out in, in that Fuhrer befail in, in late 1940 that sets up Operation Barbarossa. So in other words, the IG Farben plan that comes out in 1942 is reflective of a decision that's been taken in the German deep state, not just by Hitler and not just by the military, but also by the corporations. Mm. That's what emerges from it. Yeah. Uh, there is also an interesting thing about the Bank of International Settlement. You call it the <laughs> McKittrick era. Yes. You list four important components, Walter Funk, the Reichsbank, money and cartels, yes. to the American component, the Sullivan and Cromwell circle. We've covered much of this in other shows, of course, but right. we, we're just recapping. Three, the Bank of International Settlement, the Nazis and the European Union. Four, indications of a hidden international system of finance. I think that's, I mean, that's a show, that's a series of shows in itself, and you right. already did some with... Uh, May she rest in peace. Um, George Ann Hughes. By Cho. Yeah. Yes. Uh, although I think she passed before you could complete that series. But right. we haven't talked too much about it in this show. Just a quick recap of that. Well, the Bank of International Settlements, you have to go back to its history, the founding. The genius, the driving, uh, the driving genius behind the founding was our good old friend, Hjalmar Schacht. Hmm. He, he set this up and pitched the idea to Montague Norman, who was the head of the Bank of England in the 1920s. And the Bank of International Settlements was really set up to handle the war reparations payments from Nazi Germany to the Western allies. And as such, Schacht argued that, and this was actually eventually incorporated into the charter of the BIS, he argued that this bank had to have sovereign status. In other words, it's a little country unto itself. Think of it as the Vatican without the Pope. Okay. <laughs> so mm. so he, he, he got his Bank of International Settlements. Well, this is very important because during the war, the way that the Nazis maintained uh, international exchange was through the Bank of International Settlements. So while the war is going on, you see all of these funny little transactions between Germany and the United States or Germany and England, you know, all these financial shenanigans. Mm. And during the war, the, the head of the Bank of International Settlements is an American by the name of William McKittrick, who's allowed to travel all over Axis-occupied Europe under his status as the head of the Bank of International Settlements. He's got... When is this? This is during the war. During the war. Wow. <laughs> during the war. Right. Yeah. He's he's traveling all over fascist Italy and Nazi Germany and occupied France under mm. his, his BIS passport and immunity, essentially. Mm. But if you look at the board that he has at that time, the vast preponderance of the board members of the Bank of International Settlements are German. Mm. 
So this is the way they are stashing their funds, laundering their money. Uh, you have SS generals on, on the board. You have, uh, I believe, at, at one time, you even had uh, Carl Duisberg, who helped found IG Farben during World War One. Was Walter Funk on the board? Uh, yes, he was. Mm. If I remember correctly, yes, he was. So you have all of these connections. Uh, and Bush, bother Bush, uh, grandfather Bush, was uh, he was somehow connected to this, wasn't he? No, uh, no. I think, His, I think about father of Walker. Yeah, I, I know. You're yeah. talking about Prescott Bush. Yeah, Prescott. Prescott Bush's association with the BIS, because William McKittrick has strong connections, of course, to Dulles and, and Sullivan and Cromwell. So Prescott Bush's connection is indirect via his connections to that whole crowd through Sullivan and Cromwell and then uh, Averill Harriman. And then also uh, Prescott Bush is, of course, dealing directly with Fritz Thiessen yeah. of, of Vereinigte Stahlwerke in Germany. Uh, so you've got all of these connections that are there with Bush, but they're not direct to the BIS. No, but, but nonetheless... He's, he's involved with trading with the Nazis for six months after we've gone to war with them to the extent that, that uh, President Roosevelt shut his whole operation down under the Trading with the Enemy Act. Exactly. And I, I pointed out before that because it's so evident that the circles who were behind, you know, taking out uh, Kennedy, Right. Actually, the same circles who were all over the UFO phenomenon in America. Yep. 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 It's the same circle who had interest in, who was against FDR. Right. Right. And in and as I launched this conspiracy hypothesis before, that they actually took him out because it's such a coincidence. It's such an unbelievable coincidence that the day. They capture Hitler or uh, the day he dies, you know, cross off which you choose to believe. It's the same day uh, FDR, uh, FDR coincidentally dies, dies right? And right, we know right. they've tried to take him out before. We know it. And yeah. we all know the hallmarks of a coup. Yeah. If something happens, that's not enough. You have to look at the aftermath. Right. That's how you see it's a real coup. And the aftermath of the FDR vanishing from the scene is that all his policies are turned around. All his uh, biggest ideological fellows are eradicated mm -hmm. because they were all anti-Nazis. And in comes people who, you know, they can't put anti FDR people in, but they can put in neutral people who can bridge the gap between uh, what FDR did and what, you know, the Sullivan Cromwell people wants. And, and they got those stooges. Those stooges allowed the national security state right. and allowed the military industrial complex to explode. So much so that one of them even felt bad when he was retiring and tried to warn us about it. But of course, to no avail. Well, this, this is a good point that you're making because this is precisely what you see happening with the Truman administration. In a way, I feel very sorry for, for President Truman because when he gets into office and learns the extent of, of FDR's cooperation with the Soviets and so on, he, he, he's basically inherited a mess. Mm. And it's very informative to note that it's Truman who signs the National Security Act and then puts Dulles, 
Alan Dulles in charge of the CIA. There's your Sullivan and Cromwell crowd. Mm -hmm. And then he puts uh, John J. McCloy as, as American High Commissioner for Germany. And what does McCloy promptly do? Well, he pardons 70,000 Nazis. Right. So, right. so Truman, you know, I, I don't like the guy or his policies, but I do have some sympathy with the position that he was in. Because this whole thing he inherits, and he can't ever really get a handle on controlling it. So you create this huge, hideous national security police state that America's become. And then Eisenhower inherits that from Truman and goes out and plays lots of golf. And then... You know, then when he then when he learns what what the strategic integrated operational plan for war with the Soviet Union is, then he wakes up, you know, towards the end of his administration mm. and thinks this this has gotten way out of hand. Mm. And of course, by that time, he's he's exiting office and all he can do is warn us about the dangers of the military industrial complex when he leaves office and hands the baton off to Kennedy, you know, to try and make. And then <laughs> comes a guy who actually does something about it to really. Yeah. Yeah, right. He, Kennedy is at least, uh, in in my opinion, if you look at some, not necessarily all, but if you look at some of his uh, domestic policy decisions and statements, he's clearly aware of this structure and he's trying to undo it. And of course, they off him, you know. Yeah, but he, he's a threat on so many levels. Uh, oh, yeah, he uh, is. E economically, he wanted to reform the economy. This right. is not playing well for the international cartel and right. banking system, right? Right. He's uh, trying to do something about the UFO thing. Right. They are owning that. They don't want right. that. Right. He is doing, uh, he's going further than uh, FDR. He is uh, trying to cooperate directly with uh, Khrushchev. Right. And as I've speculated, he is also, he's aware of what's going on in Argentina and oh, yeah. probably, yeah. you know, he was the only one who didn't go down and pay fealty to. That's right. Bowman or whatever, right? I, I think he would wanted to expose it. So, well, uh, I think he had to go. Yeah, I think Kennedy's decision. You recall that he came out with that National Security Action Memorandum yeah. that turned over covert operations, took covert operations away from the CIA and placed it directly under the Pentagon, in other words, directly under his command, mm. and you know, threatened to smash the CIA into a thousand pieces. Well, the moment he did that. He is a target of the Sullivan and Cromwell group. Uh, he fires Alan Dulles for his role in the Bay of Pigs mess and then comes out with that uh, security memorandum. And that's also going to make him a target for this post-war Nazi organization because the CIA is the cover under which it operates. Yeah. So he's, he made the mistake, I think, very similar to Trump. He made the mistake of not having enough of his own network of people in charge right. of all of the agencies of the federal government. But to his credit, I think he realized that the most incestuous corrupt agency that he had to deal with was the Department of Justice. And I think this is why he puts his own brother, brother. in charge yeah. of it. Mm. Okay, moving on here then. Uh, part two is, I mean, this is such a huge book, 350 pages. So this is like scratching the surface off the surface. But let's uh, just do our duty and go through it. So part two, 
uh, I'm going to read now just to mm-hmm. trigger your memory mm-hmm. the chapter titles, and you'll just pick what's the most important to talk about before we move on to part three of this book. Okay. So you have a monopolium of chaos. Uh, you have buried billion treasure trusts, currency cartels, and molecule monopolies. You have <laughs> right. You have Europe uh-huh. from the Atlantic to the Urals. We've touched that the currency cartel and secret treaties. You have concerning the cosmology cartel, collisions, quarks, and conspiracy theories. I know we have to cover some of this because it's coming back in part three. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and then you have conclusions to part two. So, what would you want to pick from this? To well, to me, on? the one to me the one that is the most important there is CERN, mm. because again, I am not convinced that CERN's telling us everything that they're up to. Uh, I don't think it's just about particle physics. I never have. But it's important to remember two things. CERN is a consortium, an international consortium, of largely the European powers, but also to a certain extent, Russia, China, the United States, Japan. But the biggest contributor to CERN is, uh, guess who, once again... (laughs) Germany. Yeah. But CERN is also, this is the very intriguing point. CERN is, again, a sovereign entity. Mm. In other words, it has international status. And the reason that's important is because when they were first talking about firing up the Large Hadron Collider, there were people both inside of Europe and inside of this country that had read some of CERN's pronouncements and what they hoped that they would be able to achieve, <coughs> they were concerned that CERN was trying to create what are, are called um, quark-gluon plasmas, which is kind of a, a miniature black hole, yeah. for want of a better expression. That's right. So they went to court in the United States and in Europe in various countries to try and, and delay the startup of CERN. And the courts unanimously found that the people had no standing, number one, and number two, that the courts didn't have jurisdiction over CERN anyway because it's a sovereign entity. Wow. In other words, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. yeah. It's, it's, like, it's like the city of London and the Vatican State. Yeah, without a pope. <laughs> wow. <laughs> or a queen. Right. So. So CERN. Well, who's who's calling the shots there then? Well, I mean, if it's a, if it's a sovereign entity, there needs to be some kind of power. Okay, this is this is where it gets interesting because yeah. the sovereign part of it was so that CERN could float bonds, sovereign bonds, to raise the money to fund CERN. So, in other words, whoever holds the most bonds has the most leverage over CERN. Huh. Guess who? <laughs> Well, yes, ultimately, I would guess Martin Bormann, but in the white <laughs> in the white world, uh, some German uh, cartel, probably. Uh, My impression from the figures that I saw at the time was was that most of the money, in terms of of funding the project, were coming from Germany. That's not to say that France or other countries didn't have significant. Uh, input. They certainly did. Is, isn't CERN crossing several borders, by the way? Yeah, it crosses uh, the border of Switzerland and France. Right. A little part. A little part of it, I believe, lies inside of France. Right. So, in other words, this is the perfect way to get around that little problem. You just make it a sovereign entity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the other problem with CERN. 
Um, I've suspected when they first announced the project that this was really about hyperdimensional physics. It's not about particle physics at all. It took CERN about 10 years to admit that what they were looking for were evidence of higher dimensions, okay? Mm-hmm. So the uh, that's the other part. Good particles, good the, Yeah, so, yeah, <laughs> you know, stuff like that, you know, yeah. which is, I, I think, just, okay, have another belly laugh. But, <laughs> but um, not only this, but CERN, people don't know this, CERN is the largest single unit user of the Internet. And the reason why is the scientists that are looking at all of the experimental results basically get these results emailed to them. So Mm -hmm. in other words, the physical location of CERN is in Switzerland. The location of the brains of CERN is scattered all over the world. And here's the problem. This means that you have no way of understanding fully what they're looking for, number one, and fully being able to verify their results. Why? To verify the results independently, you have to build your own independent Large Hadron Collider. Hmm. Now, it's interesting to note that China decided a few years ago that they want to build their own bigger version of CERN. And I suspect the reason that China wanted to do this is that they were suspicious of some of the results that they were seeing published by CERN. Mm. And the only way to verify those results is build one themselves and run the experiment again. But that's just the tip of it. I strongly suspect, Al, that you have to understand that the stuff that is selected for scientists to examine as they're running all these experiments are selected on the basis of computer algorithms. Right. Follow me? Yeah. This means, in my opinion, that it is highly possible that you could have a system of secret algorithms and a secret committee reviewing certain results that they don't want widely publicized. Mm -hmm. And that those things are precisely things like, is there a correlation between Earth magnetic field activity and when this collider is turned on? Is there a correlation between aggregate human activity or market Mm. activity when this thing is turned on? Mm. You know, things that are not, that we would not think as being associated with particle physics per se. And I strongly suspect that this is the case. It's set up as a sovereign entity to keep certain things secret. And that means, in my opinion, that its real purpose from the get-go has been military. When did I launch it officially? I think the Hadron Collider itself was turned on circa 2007 or 8, somewhere in that, in that uh, time frame. Because you'll remember, they turned it on and powered it up to full power, and then immediately shut it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember that? Yes. And then we were shown pictures later, years later, of some of the magnetic uh, coil couplings that had literally been lurched out of their sockets and twisted up and all of this sort of stuff. And I'll tell you, Al, and I'll, I, I, I was made fun of by people, some people involved with CERN at the time, but I'll tell you what my suspicion is. They discovered some, when they fired it up, they discovered some macro torsion event mm. that they had not expected nor predicted. 
In other words, a genuine hyperdimensional effect. And the reason I'm stressing that is it was after that accident, years, in fact, two or three years after that accident, that they finally came out and admitted, yes, we're looking for evidence of, of higher, higher dimensions as well as just slamming particles together. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I have a lot of suspicions about that thing. I laid them out in that book, and that's, that to me is one of the most important chapters in that book. Right. Uh, by the way, do, doesn't America have their own uh, large hydron collider nowadays? Well, we were building one in Waco, Texas back in the 80s that President Reagan uh stopped wow reagan um, stopped it he, reagan he was completely lost affair then it's serious <laughs> yeah well the united states does have large particle accelerators but they're linear accelerators uh the brookhaven national laboratory is the place where the united states has so that's state. when they so after he stopped it that's when they decided okay let's just ship it over to europe that's exactly what happened yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we all know that who was running Reagan's regime really was his vice president. Was Bush? Well, yeah, let's uh, let's remember where where that collider, circular collider that Reagan stopped was to be built. You know where it was supposed to be built? On the Bush's land? <laughs> no, 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 no. Waco. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, and Waco was when? Well, the Waco uh, Branch Davidian massacre was in 1993 about a month really after uh president clinton took office it was february the raid the raid the raid began on february 28th 1993 and then Mm. uh, those people were slaughtered on april 19th 1993 yeah so it was after the collider right was yeah okay right okay then you have part three i can Mm -hmm. read to you the title is there too, and you can choose what we should elucidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Europe. The, the main title of part three is Europe from the Atlantic to Vladivostok, the communist side of the coin. Mm-hmm. Chapter nine is called Prelude to a Problematic, Major Jordan's Troublesome Diaries. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear about that. Then you have the next chapter is An Interlude to Ponder the Problematic, A Secret Attendance at a Quiet Funeral. And finally, 11 dangling threads and radioactive speculations a very brief epilogue um yeah ufos come into the picture here i see so Mm -hmm. let's go to the troublesome diaries okay well george racy jordan was a u.s army major later uh, u.s army air force and then air force who was the military liaison officer for the Lendley's project. And he was stationed in Grand Forks, pardon me. um, Yeah, I think Grand Forks, Montana or Helena, Montana, one of the two overseeing the air shipments of Lendley's material from the United States to the Soviet Union. So he worked very closely with a lot of Soviet air force officers that had come to this country and were flying these planes from Montana up through Alaska and then over the strait into Siberia. And Jordan was very suspicious of the activities that he saw going on. And he kept a diary of what he was observing being shipped. And 
one time he decided to open up some of these packages that were under diplomatic seal and take a look at just what was going on because he was contacted directly by the White House concerning a certain shipment by none other than Harry Hopkins, okay, President Roosevelt's advisor. Now, it's very important to understand that Harry Hopkins was mentioned in the U.S. Army's Venona transcripts, which are the signals intercept transcripts that the Army was keeping of, of Soviet communications, all right? Harry Hopkins was mentioned in these transcripts as a Soviet agent. Mm. This is crucial to mm. what we're going to discuss here. So Jordan, Major Jordan, decided that, you know, this is a lot of very high-level personal involvement here. Something's going on. So he decided on one of these crucial, crucial shipments to sneak into the aircraft while the Soviets were away from it and take a look at what was inside of some of these, these uh, bags. <laughs> and he discovered terms like yellow cake, like uranium, like deuterium, and on and on it went. In other words, he was looking at documents that were detailing the American atom bomb project. Mm. And as an initial of approval, and it even discovered, much to his horror, some of this so-called yellow cake being stored for shipment to Russia. Now, yellow cake is basically the final form of uranium-235 before it's metallicized for fuel in an atom bomb, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and, of course, Jordan doesn't realize until after the war what he was seeing. So he then told his story to a couple of members of the House Un-American Activities Committee, namely one Richard Nixon and one Carl Munt. Now, hmm. Munt is significant because he's from my home state of South Dakota, all right? And he's, he's later a senator. But he's, if you look at those House Un-American Activities Committee hearings, during the Alger Hiss era, which is when Jordan decides to testify to that committee, you'll find you'll find Carl Munt just as often as Richard Nixon being the one grilling these people. Mm -hmm. So anyway, Jordan tells his story to the House and American Activities Committee, and he makes it very clear that all of this was was being overseen by Harry Hopkins, who it turns out is on the Venona transcripts only declassified in the 1990s as being a Soviet agent of influence in FDR's administration. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now what I'm laying the groundwork here for is the next chapter, a secret visit to a funeral. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. Because guess who is in my opinion, receiving information from the Venona transcripts. Well, it's one Senator Joseph McCarthy. Mm. And the reason I think he's receiving that information, if you, if you do the work and look at the transcripts of who and how McCarthy is questioning people, it's very clear he's getting a source of information from somewhere, but that that source cannot be compromised. So what they're doing is they're telling McCarthy, go look at this person, go look at that person. We can't tell you why we know, but just look there and see what you can uncover. 
So he's got a source of intelligence that's actually steering his investigations. The reason I'm confident of that is because the agency that's overseeing these signal intercepts of Soviet communications is the FBI. Hmm. And guess who's a good friend with Senator McCarthy? Well, J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. So you've, you've got a source of information for McCarthy that, that is classified that they cannot reveal, but they're steering him to investigate certain areas, certain bases, certain people, and so on and so forth in hopes that he will uncover it and, and the story will be able to go public. Do you have an inkling about who could be the man behind the curtain here? Well, have you read my McCarthy book? No, I was going to oh. ask you if that's the, yeah, because that's, that's expanding up on this, right? Yes. Uh, mm. The book is called McCarthy, Monmouth and the Deep State. Al, read it. You'll be, you will be, that's on Lulu, by the way. You will be absolutely gobsmacked. Okay. By what's in those transcripts. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, the transcripts that I'm using were only declassified by the Senate Government Operations Committee, which was McCarthy's committee, under Senator Joseph Lieberman. <laughs> in, oh, wow. I think it was I think it was 2003. Mm. In other words, we we don't really know what happened in those McCarthy hearings because the transcripts themselves were kept classified for over 50 years. <laughs> okay. Wow. But one of the one of the interesting things that happens with McCarthy is when McCarthy died under incredibly suspicious circumstances, one of the secret attendees at his funeral was Bobby Kennedy. Hmm. Well, why Bobby Kennedy? Well, Bobby, Ken <laughs> Bobby Kennedy was McCarthy's assistant chief counsel. Oh, that's right. That's, that's right. right. But that's early in his career, right? That's very early in his career. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they didn't seem to, you know, share his anti-communist paranoia. Oh, on the contrary. On the contrary. If you look at John and Bobby Kennedy, they were staunch defenders. In fact, John Kennedy walked out of a Harvard uh, meeting where McCarthy was just being bashed by Ed Murrow, of, of course. Mm. John Kennedy walked out. He wouldn't hear it. Mm. He wouldn't hear it. In fact, if you look at when the Senate censured McCarthy, John Kennedy arranged to be absent that day so that, so, hmm. so that he wouldn't have to vote on the, on the issue at all. No, the Kennedy family was very tight with McCarthy because uh, Joseph Kennedy had donated several times to, to McCarthy's campaigns, and McCarthy had returned a few favors to Kennedy when he asked, uh, asked McCarthy not to endorse uh, Henry Cabot Lodge and so on and so forth. So those two families were very, very tight. And it's, it's one of the most astonishing things that you don't realize until you're confronted with the fact. And yeah. Bobby Kennedy took that trip to Wisconsin and, and attended McCarthy's funeral secretly. Yeah, so, so this was, um, I mean, you wrote this before your other book that you're talking about now. Um, well, I wrote this book and, and I was laying the groundwork for the McCarthy book because right. this is one intertwined story that I can't write up in simply one book. No. And since the focus of that book was really on the, on the Nazi part of this, which is interesting when you, when you get to McCarthy, because he's got some interesting connections there too. 
but um, you, you, I, I was simply trying to lay the groundwork for, for exploring the McCarthy uh, aspect of this story, because again, you know, you've got this big tussle in the post-war government trying to figure out who's been infiltrating us and why, you know? So there may have been, there may have been anti-Nazi infiltrations. Oh yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, when you say the communist side of the coin, are you then indicating that Nazis may have even infiltrated the Soviet or Chinese? Well, I think there's, oh boy, the Chinese, the Chinese aspect of the story, I have, I have not even gotten to um, in any of my books. <laughs> it's very relevant today. Oh, yes. There, there is a Chinese connection there. Trust me. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, and again, that was something that was a big subject of discussion uh, during the McCarthy or what I call the committee era, because it's more than just Senator McCarthy. But um, when you look at some of the, right-wing connections in the background of Senator McCarthy, you clearly see that this committee era is, is really a struggle for who gets to control the narrative mm. and, and what actually went on. And McCarthy, if you look at, if you look at those transcripts and the thing that bothers me the most about, about people that talk about McCarthy is few of them ever sit down and read the transcripts of those committees mm -hmm. and what was really going on. Uh, he clearly had a source of information inside the government somewhere. And you don't really, you can't really understand what happens during his committee and then his downfall without understanding what those sources were and what he was actually investigating. Because by the time he starts investigating Fort Monmouth, he's way, way out of the communist thing and way, way, here it comes, Al, into the UFO thing. Yeah, you have a, a subchapter called UFOs and Dr. Yep. Edward Condon, Security Risk. Yeah, yeah. Edward Condon was one of the uh, people that was in, in charge of the Air Force's Condon Committee. And, you know, which was basically a whitewash of, of the whole UFO thing. Mm. And again, he came to the attention of, of Senator McCarthy. And I always thought, and at the time I wrote that book, I did not have those transcripts, the Monmouth mm. transcripts, because I had tried for years to get them and come to find out that they had been classified for a tremendous period of time. And the... The Condon thing, I always thought was peculiar because, you know, what's, what's McCarthy doing investigating this guy? Well, when I got the transcripts of the Monmouth hearings, I, I quickly discovered what it was because he was very, very clearly touching on the UFO issue. And more importantly, he knew he was doing that. Hmm. Right. And China is sneaking itself in here too. You, you say the China problem, Henry Morgenthau and yeah. Chiang Kai-shek's gold. Yep. And then you wrap up with radioactive speculations. Just touching that briefly, I, I believe that's to do with the so-called, uh, what did you call it, the Tsar um, bomb? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's to do with the nuclear program of the Russians, right? Right. Uh, I don't recall exactly what I said there, but but the Tsar the Tsar Bomba is another one of these um, 
Well, well, let let me help you out here. You you have a quote saying in eighty nine to ninety one, the communists throughout Eastern Europe, as in the Soviet Union, adopted the third way, the acquisition of false political labels to mask the continuing covert communist socialist orientation. And mm-hmm. I believe that's a clue also to the name of your book, right? Yeah. And we you haven't really uh, elaborated on that. Uh, I, well, I think we th- should do that too. The third way. The third way is. It comes from Juan Perón, ultimately, Mm. because he outlined a kind of geopolitical cultural philosophy that we do not need to pick between Soviet-style Marxism and American-style capitalism. There's there's a middle ground between the two. Now, for for Perón, obviously, that's fascism. (laughs) (laughs) But but for others, um, Muammar Gaddafi also talked about third way. Mm. And interestingly enough, his his understanding was a bit fascist, but it was also coupled to the traditional Islamic uh, disdain for for monetary systems based on monetized debt and interest. Mm -hmm. This is the reason they had to get rid of him. We can't have that. Yeah. He, he was uh, he was not just un- he wanted the whole of Africa to go over to their own currency. Right, right, and they couldn't have that. No, because if if that were successful, that's the end of the central banking monetized debt model. Mm. Period. I mean, it just is. And nowadays, just a bypass on Pasong here. Right. Now, Bitcoin or crypto coin seems to oh, yeah. do that instead. To a certain extent, I have my suspicions about cryptocurrencies, but that's another yeah. that's another interview. <laughs> but yeah. anyway, yeah. Uh, in Russia's case, and I've said this many times, in Russia's case, this third way, I think Russia is embarked on a huge experiment that people are don't realize that they're embarked upon because. Russia, as I've said many times, is the first post-postmodernist state. It is it is turning away from this unipolar globalist model, be it Marxist or whatever, and moving back to a more traditional kind of uh, nation-state and culture sort of vision. And that's their. They, very, they are really doing a third way. Yeah, they are really doing a third way. Uh, say what you will about Vladimir Putin. I do not view him as as some sort of neo-Stalinist. Uh, he is he's embarked as as has the Russian nation on a very very different paradigm. Um, moving back, I mean, he kept some values. He took the nationalism, right, right, the right. nationalism of Stalin. He right. preserved. Right. But then he went economically. He went another way. But you see, he has. Uh, there's so many sympathetic traits because, for example, they go full ecological and, right. and natural. Right. Uh, yeah. They're and, and going against the corporate fascist agenda. They're going against. Well, if you look at Vladimir Putin's speeches, uh, particularly from let's say 2005 to 2010. Those speeches are challenging almost every sacred dogma of, yeah. of Mr. Globaloni. Mm. You've got another phenomenon going on in Russia, and that's the massive government-sponsored building of churches. Uh, you've got the, the cooperation between Russia's nuclear forces and the Russian Orthodox Church, and on and on we could go. Permaculture. He wants every citizen to make their own food in their gardens. Right. 
Right. It's like, it's as if he actually has the best interest of the citizens at heart. That's that's very radical today. Yeah, it is <laughs> for, it, le- it, for political leaders. For for any political leaders, <laughs> much less a Russian one, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's just all sorts of stuff going on. So yeah, the, the, there's this this third way thing that really began as an attempt to justify a fascist course that has morphed really uh, depending on who you're talking about into a kind of uh let's figure out a different way of doing things than than this marxist capitalist binary system we've been locked into mm. and believe it or not russia's kind of leading the way in that in that sense mm. uh, and this is why i think ultimately russia and china are on a collision course because those two visions are incompatible with each other Yeah, but as long as uh, they have uh, America, NATO, Europe as the common quote-unquote enemy, I, d- I don't think it will happen until... Well, I because think, they all realize that if they are going to survive, they have to stand up together against Mr. Global. Well, I, I, think, that's, I think that's true, but I also think NATO is unraveling. <laughs> Yeah, let's hope. Breathtaking. Let's really hope. <laughs> let's really hope because, you know. But, but there's a spooky element in China. I don't trust that, you know, if China could hold their own, be like, yeah, we're communists and we're going to be. But China is so, should I say. Um, it's fragile. It's fragile to be hijacked from within. Right. And whoever hijacks it will have because if you look at the western powers they are drooling over many of the things china can do uh, that they want to implement like the social credit system they want to implement it here yeah. and they're trying so if the power the people behind the scene in the western power structure can get an influence in china it's game over Because right. whoever controls China can just implement it uh, much easier. Well, I think I think the problem the West is facing with China and its plans for its own version of social. I, I personally don't think it's this great reset social credit system they're trying to put into place is is going to come off. I, I think it's going to they're going to try, and I think things are going to get very bumpy. But ultimately, I don't think it's going to come off. But in China's case. I think right now with Xi's crackdowns and the Chinese economy being in a really, really, really bad state, um, I think he's facing some pretty stout internal opposition. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if either he initiates some sort of uh, neo-Maoist cultural revolution or if in turn he might just be deposed. Yeah. I, I think that's I think what I'm thinking. Are, yeah, I, I I agree with you. But I don't think whoever deposes him is going to is going to loosen the grip on power to enable the West to come in and, and do what they did to China in the 19th century. I just don't see that happening. And and for one thing, I don't think the Chinese people themselves would put up with any attempt like that. That's if it's overt, right? I'm I'm thinking uh, that whoever takes over next would be in cahoots. Kind of covert. Yeah, it would be in cahoots with the rest. Because if you look at, you say we can't implement the social, not as they do, but what is the vaccine passport? It's just the same thing. It's a social credit, yeah. Exactly. And look at the sentiments. You you know, uh, people who don't take vaccines, they are going to, and just for you, Mr. Al Gore rhythm, we are not <laughs> talking about pro uh, pro-vaccine or anti-vaccine. We're just saying that, the reaction against people who doesn't take vaccine, right or wrong, 
is like burn them on the pole. Uh, don't give them medicine help. Uh, you know, it's like they're becoming a paria, a, a lower caste system uh, kind of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, by the way, have you seen the movie? Um, you know, the movie where the aliens come and uh, one and one they take over. And when they've taken over, they make this weird sound. It's a classical horror movie. No, I haven't seen it. Yeah, you have. It's the one where some kind of plant thing comes from outer space and one after one after one after one is taken over. And when eventually enough people are taken over, then it's not hidden anymore. Then it's, you have to run, you have to flee, right? And if Invasion of the body snatchers? Yes. And if they discover you, they point and make this horrible sound. One of those, look, one of the unvaxxed people. <laughs> you catch my drift? Yes. <laughs> That's goddamn what we're, we're looking at right now. Yeah, yeah. When they turn on the switch. Well, I think they're going to fail. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, but doesn't it work somewhat working in the state system? Well, it, the further, the way this country, quote unquote, works right now is that the further you get from the federal government, the less corrupt things are. Exactly. Uh, but the federal government, is so unbelievably corrupt now it's it's not even funny yeah you know i mean we've we've got a president who's basically in there by dint of massive fraud we've got a department of justice that's openly making decisions that are against the people it's unreal yeah did you catch the the revelation of uh, so many congress people have uh, doing illegal um, insider trading Oh yeah, yeah, and it's it's legal. It's just as legal as bribes. Yeah, you know the way the yeah. citizens That's exactly united. what it. It's exactly it's it's America's bribe system, and mm. it's to the point. I really think the country is unrecoverable politically, and this. Is, yeah, I think I think it will break apart. Uh, this question is: Will it break into different states? That will be interesting to see. Well, the interesting thing is you're seeing certain states have been making preparations. For a breakup, if you look at their steps in the last few years, at least that's the way it looks to me. Mm. But you know, that could that could easily play into Mr. Globalonius' hands too. But the thing that intrigues me is the more I look at it, I think Mr. Globalonius is losing his grip on power and reality. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah, we have to keep hopes. Oh, absolutely. I think Mr. Globalone is in a state of panic. Otherwise, yeah, would... but, but what he's panicking most about in your local politics is uh, the populism wave on the left right. and the right, because yep. his game has been to play those two wings against each other, right? But now there's well, a that's new... breaking down dramatically. I know. So now, now populists on the left and right are cooperating. Yep. And that's dangerous because... You know, if um, people go out in the streets on the left for some case that they are concerned about, let's say Black Lives Matter or something, then uh, the media machine can just uh, turn, you know, hatred against that. And, oh, yeah, police smack them down, smack them down. Then the the right goes out on the street. Let's say um, they stop the steal. What do they do? Exact same playbook against the left. They say to the, uh, people on the side, look at that. Oh, they're trying to coup. Oh, smack them down. More police, more police, smack them down. If people who are prone to go out in the street and protest realizes that it's in their own interest to support all sorts of protest against a man, that's when they will fall. Not, well, that's, not, not before. Believe it or not, that's what's happening over here. 
there's two phenomena that are happening right now in this country, and they get no coverage in the media. Of course. And that is people turning off the propertainment media. <laughs> yes, yes, that's an advantage. Uh, it's, it's happening big time over here and yes. not paying any attention to it. And the other thing, as you say, is this populism thing. What's, what's happening here, I, I don't know about Europe, but what what's happening in this country is as the Democratic Party leadership has become so radicalized, all those, all those old-fashioned Democrats that are not that way at all mm. are moving into the kind of independent camp, and they're becoming part of this populist revolt that's happening. And that's happening particularly with uh, professional unions, doctors, police, and so on, mm. that have been, been traditional Democratic strongholds. Mm. And that's, that's evaporating. Uh, it's it's unbelievable, but whether whether or not it's fast enough, I don't know. The problem is Trump is waiting in the wings, and my problem there is he's responsible for this vaccine plan scamdemic mess that we're all in. Yeah, but I don't think he had any clue of what it would lead. To. Well, I don't. Well, of course he didn't have any clue. He's Trump, <laughs> but, <Yeah. laughs> but, but but. Nonetheless, his support is going to be very soft unless he steps out and gets in front of that issue. Yeah. But anyway, it's a mess over here. I can't tell you the anger in this country at Biden and Co. It's just- of course. I mean, look, they eradicated whole lines of industries, whole well, lines of industries. I, I know. It's, just it's, overnight. And they didn't even yeah. bail out people. We no. got bailed out. Yeah, I know. So so that's I know. Over here the bailouts are, are oftentimes tied, well, we'll we'll fix you up, you just take the jab. Right. Right. You know, right. And and that's that's just not gonna fly. So I mean there's signs of hope. You actually I take that back. You did bail out lots and that's the co- uh, multinational corporations. Well, they got of course, bailout. Yeah, yeah. And they didn't even need it because need in it. many cases they were allowed to run the business. Yep. You had like the phenomenon a local cafe run by a private person closed down. Then you have a big chain yep. with a same kind of cafe next door. Yep. They could go on. Yep. Amazing man. It's amazing. It's, it's it's totally off the chart. And you're supposed to be the cradle of small business and and like oh, yeah. middle class. Oh, we're the exceptional nation, haven't you heard? <laughs> we're a, we're a socialist country, and we have more small and uh, middle business than you guys got now. I know, I know, I know. It's just it's just everything is upside down. But I exactly do, I do take hope because I I think Mr. Globaloni has. It's not to say that they're going to give up and crawl into the woodwork. No. Oh, no, no, no. They go down dying. But I think they're going down. I do. But think the problem is how much of, of the world will they take with them on the way down? Well, that's the problem. And this is why I think we've got to start talking about what kind of society and culture do we want to see on the other side of all of this? Mm. Because no one's thinking in those terms. Right now, this country, I, I say that this country is in a Harper's Ferry 2.0 moment. Because you look at the comparison of what's going on, at least in this country, I can't speak for Europe, but you look at what's going on in this country and compare it to the run-up to the American Civil War, and the parallels are off the chart. Mm. It's just off the chart. Mm. So we're heading for something. I don't know what it is, but um, Biden-Enco is is kind of the last straw for everybody over here. I mean – you go to football games over here and the college students are, are shouting fuck 
Joe Biden. I know, and I, now they're using a code. Now they're using yeah. a code. Have you heard yeah. about that? Yeah, I've heard about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the problem is, of course, Biden is just a, a figurehead, a, a senile figurehead. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, he is. He really is. I think it's Obama behind the scenes running things. Yeah, to a certain extent. But, but yeah. you know, Obama, Clinton had more power than Obama. Oh, easily. And she's still, uh, I'll talk about her. Yeah. She's still heavily in the, and who's behind Clinton again, right? Um, <laughs> these are all. Bush. <laughs> yeah, and behind there again. So, I mean, these are all uh, the henchmen of Mr. Yep. Global. I agree with you. So, anyway. I don't know, but let's uh, let's go back to this now. We've read uh, some random things from this book, and it may seem incoherent to people who haven't read the book, but I promise you that Joseph weaves it very coherently together. I just want us to say before we take a break something about the UFOs, because mm -hmm. we were just teasing about that. And you say yourself in this book, let me just read, you say, does the Nazi International still exist? If so, where is it located? Who are its members? What has it been up to? Ever since writing the Nazi International, people have been asking me these questions. Indeed, I've been asking them myself. And in other books, Covert Wars and Breakaway Civilizations and Covert Wars and the Clash of Civilizations, I've been attempting to lay the groundwork necessary to answer that question. In other words, both those books are concerned with the advanced technology and the UFO mm -hmm. phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And so I think we should say something about that for two reasons. Number one, it is tightly uh, connected to the fascist international. Mm -hmm. And second, it's got a renaissance today, man. Oh, my oh, yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm as alarmed as you are, Al, about what I see is this creeping fascism uh, in the West. It's, it's really off the charts, and it's pretty much everywhere. And I think this is the reason why you have so many protests around the Western world going on, because people sense something is wrong. They may not know mm. exactly what. Mm. But the UFO part of this enters my calculation in this way. If I can kind of summarize what you've mentioned, those other book titles that yeah. I cover in those books and what I've covered in some of my talks. And that is, if we go back to the end of World War II and place ourselves in the position of the Western movers and shakers, the people, you know, the Alan Dulleses and the Lord Mountbattens and so on that are, mm. that are trying to emerge from the ashes of World War II and make sense of things and, and establish a governing structure that is stable and, and that will work. Well, if, if you look at what they're confronted with, they really are confronted with three different strategic problems that they've got to deal with and deal with, with the utmost economy. And those three strategic problems are the Soviet bloc, obviously, and this post-war Nazi international extraterritorial organization, which they certainly know exists because they've cooperated with it in some cases. Yeah. And or been confronted by it in other cases. Or been taken over by it in even other cases. Or been taken, o and taken over by it, or at least heavily infiltrated by it. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got the UFO. Mm. You know, what are those things? Where are they coming from? Who's behind them? And so on. Mm -hmm. And... If you're going to deal with that 
kind of strategic situation, particularly the last one, because the last one is actually the most threatening and the most important, the UFO. Mm. So I think they took the decision that they had to deal, they had to develop technologies to deal with the latter one. And in the process, those might yield technologies that would enable them to deal with the other two. But to deal with that technology and to forestall any potential military intervention on the part of the UFO, they have to, they have to establish a huge underground system of black projects to investigate and perhaps emulate but via technology, the, the performance characteristics of UFOs. And to do that, they're going to they need, need a hidden system of finance. They need a hidden system of finance. They, in other words, they're going to need so much money over such a long time, they cannot go to their war-weary people and say, we're going to tax you to death so that we can build our own flying saucers. You know? mm. so that you can't have. That you can, yeah, <laughs> that you can't have, right. So they need to create a hidden system of finance. And this is where I think the beginning of this, this modern system of finance begins because what we're seeing happening in the financial world now makes no sense because there is an off-the-books system that is dealing in trillions of dollars over a very long time to create the infrastructure and to create the research projects that are going to give them that technology. And to do that, they have to have a hidden source of, of money, which I think was, was done via recovery of all of this Axis loot and particularly the Japanese part of it. And then in order to make it work, they have to have certain prime banks in the Western financial system as participants in it. And the banks are going to leap at it because essentially this gives them a hidden reserve that they can rehypothecate over and over again and make lots of money on in the meantime. And this is what I think has happened. And to buttress this, let's remember that I wrote those books about this hidden system of finance prior to the recent decision during the very final months of the Trump administration of a regulation called FASB 56. Catherine Fitz has talked about this numerous times. Basically, the financial regulations proposed and accepted by the Trump administration took the entire federal budget black. Mm. In other words, what she and I are both suggesting is that hidden system grew to the point that it has now engulfed the federal government and basically taken its entire federal budget black. And this is what they're trying to do with the Great Reset by moving to a cashless digital currency system, because that's a one-way mirror behind which they can operate, but we can't penetrate. Right. And the, the other side of this is you see the same thing happening in the private world, the corporate world, with places like Harvard University endowment saying that they're taking all of their finances black. You have all of these uh, special, uh, special program uh, companies starting up and avoiding the Security and Exchange Commission regulations. By doing so, you have a lot of these space companies coming in and buying up these, these front companies so that they don't have to 
go through regulations for initial public offerings and so on. So they're taking the entire financial system black. Yeah, we've learned from previous programs. For example, we had Michael Schwert on, we've had right. uh, Catherine Fitz on, and we've learned that the hidden system, all of this is post-war. And the banking, right. it's, is it a coincidence, folks, that Nazis are heavily influenced in the new banking system after right. the World War? It's, it's laying the groundwork for the UFO phenomenon for right. uh, our classified UFO program. Is it a coincidence that the Nazis are heavily influenced in the corporate world, that Bormann basically launches this from his 750 corporations, right. harboring the era of the corporate uh, state that we have now internationally, Mr. Global, as she's Catherine Fitz calls it. Is it a coincidence that kind of, you know, in the 70s, the visible and overt Nazi players looks as if they are disappearing, um, probably because they're dying off, right? Uh, and right. But at the same time, something else happens, and that is that NASA, that they have controlled so far, is becoming irrelevant. They stop right. going to the moon, and who's taking over everything? The corporations. The military-industrial complex. Yep. Yes, uh, your, your Lockheed Martin, your yep. Raytheon, your Boeing. And those are the guys who knows anything. We've had Richard Dolan on. He's very frustrated because even even in Pentagon, they don't have the right to know anymore. Yep. They have to go and ask permission yep. to the private corporations who are running the whole thing. So we see the productions of, and I think Antarctica, that's where Antarctica comes in. Uh, mm -hmm. That's where they are. What, what do they call themselves? Um, the big corporation that's running stuff down in. I think they're coming from, somehow they're coming from Lockheed Martin, but they have a new name. L something. Um, Ledos, Legos, Lados. Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, Ledos. Something like that, yeah. yeah. So, so we have the money, we have the structure, yep. and now we also have the patents, the, the control over the UFO programs. Right. All in the private world. Straight out of Bormann's uh, wet dream. Yep. People, you have to see the patterns here. Oh, yes, absolutely. And since we're talking about Nazis and banking, let's put what you just said in a bit of historical context. Because when the Bilderberg Group was established in the 1950s, look at who's involved. Right. On the Western side, you have the Rockefellers and the Rottenchilds setting up the Bilderberg groups. But on the European side, very interestingly, who do you have? Well, you have Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, who, if you look at him, he's a minor German nobleman. He was a manager for IG Farben. And who is usually in attendance at those early Bilderberg meetings. Well, the CEO of Deutsche Bank, a fellow by the name of Dr. Hermann Josef Ops, ABS, mm. and it's instructive to look at Dr. Ops during the war because during the war, Dr. Ops was head of a small handling bank in Berlin that was the bank of accounts for the Reich government. In other words, this is the guy signing Adolf Hitler's paycheck as Reichskanzler. <laughs> right. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. So in other words, follow the money, as they say, follow, the, follow the money. <laughs> yeah. Because if you look at the structure of those early Bilderberg meetings, what it looks like to me is they're setting up a coordination group for laundering all of that Axis loot into the Western system of finance and then laundering it back to Europe in the form of American aid. Mm. So, you know, who are you going to need to coordinate all of this? Well, you're going to need a lot of American and European bankers. <laughs> so, mm. so there you are. Yeah. 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 So, so let's, let's take, take a break, break Joseph, Joseph. Okay. and um, touch 11.9 when we come okay. back. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks. Thanks.